like your backdrop. Yeah, you like that? Especially for you, my friend. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. Uh, I have a real treat for you today. Someone who's been on the show once before, but way, way, way back. We interviewed him at a, at a Comic-Con, but we're here to talk in more detail today. It is the esteemed writer of comics, Jerry Conway. Jerry, welcome to the show. Hey, how are you guys? We're good. We're good. Uh, appreciate you joining us. I, I have noticed, and very happily, I might add, you've been doing a lot of podcasts lately. A lot of people have been reaching out to talk about <laughs> your career. What's that all about? I think, I think it's just uh, uh, survival of the, of the old, of the youngest, I guess. <laughs> people who are curious about uh, the uh, uh, Silver Age, you know, I'm, I'm one of the handful of people uh, who are, uh, you know, still relatively active uh, in, in fan circles and available. So, uh you know, I, I, I guess it just trends, you know, and this will this will probably stop trending after a while. And then I'll go back to well-deserved uh, silence. <laughs> well, our door is always open. If you ha ever have anything to say, Jerry, if no one's reaching out, feel free to, to reach out to us. The other thing that I'll, I'll add uh, is that, you know, recent maybe recent uh, news about the Punisher skull. I know that, that that's still a mm. thing for whatever reason, perhaps uh, might sure. be into it so it seems to be perennial <laughs> at least in the last uh, five years or so you know yeah it it does it does uh and i will say normally we save this till the end but i'm gonna i'm gonna tell everybody uh right now uh if you don't follow jerry on twitter you really really need to because uh i love that this man is uh an uh, an unapologetic uh, liberal and always has been uh it's at jerry conway and I, you know, people tend to think of the older generation as more conservative, but you've always leaned toward the left. And uh, as yeah. I said, you're, you're very like you don't apologize for that. Like you, you're just putting it out there. I guess that that's the advantage of uh, so much experience and having lived through so, so tumultuous times in a way. Sure. Uh, plus, being uh, uh, for all intents and purposes, retired, and not needing to, <laughs> to be politically uh, polite, you know, um, it's, yeah, I've always been a bit of a, a, of a smart mouth, <laughs> a wise ass. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, Twitter is a, uh, uh, an addictive platform for, for, uh, promoting your unasked for opinions. <laughs> right. So, you know, I, I, I do, res I, the, the truth is I do respect, um, legitimate, uh, conservative, uh, idea ideology. Um, and I do respect, you know, the, 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 uh, thoughtful, uh, people who, you know, I disagree with what I don't tend to respect are, uh, demagogues, you know, and, uh, I don't, I don't believe that, uh, liberals have, uh, the, uh, the perfect ideas, you know, to solve problems. I mean, um, I recognize the limitations of any set of principles or ideas, but the truth is we're right now the only one that are actually presenting any ideas. Right. You know, you, know, you can't really call what, what passes for, uh, you know, uh, 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 political uh, dialogue from uh, the other side of uh, the political aisle as uh, intelligent discourse. You know, it's just, it, 
pure out and out demagoguery. So, you know, I mean, at various points in my life, you know, I, I actually voted for Ronald Reagan in 1980. And, I, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that because by the late 70s, uh, liberals were really struggling to put forward, uh, you know, practical and uh, uh, imaginative solutions to the problems that were facing the country. Uh, and at that particular moment in time, uh, conservative uh, thought was uh, very imaginative. I mean, as it turned out, most of it was wrong, but you know, it was at least presenting solutions that had not been tried at that point, you know, for a, a number of decades. So, you know, it was worth a shot. Uh, so my mind isn't like closed or, or shut down. You know, it's, it's just, I don't see any uh, uh, interlocutors, as they say, goes, you know, on, uh, with with, a, with an opposing philosophy that that uh, uh, is tied to reality. Anyway, that's that's my my rant <laughs> on uh, politics. Uh, that's a mild. You brought it up. <laughs> yeah, that's a mild rant for this show, and that's interesting to me that you you voted for Reagan in eighty. I sort of similarly when when I was younger, I, I much more identified, you know, as a conservative. And with uh, Republicans, and I, so and I and I think a lot of people, you know, whatever they identify with, left or right, it, it has so much to do with their own personal identity. Mm-hmm. And when I look back now, sure. I think of who I was in my early twenties, and I was much more closed-minded. I was much more sheltered. I hadn't, you know, been exposed to a lot of other ideas. Yeah. Uh, and I feel like as I've learned throughout my life, because I, I think in order to have a, a healthy life, you need to continue learning. You know, and once you stop learning, you might as well be in the ground, in my opinion. Um, sure. But but I, I do think as I've learned more and, and become more empathetic and experienced other cultures and other people and, you know, more diver- diversity, I've just shifted, you know, and I'm much more open minded. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day, I feel like you do. Like, I'm happy to listen to ideas from the right, if that's what we want to label it. If I'm talking to somebody who's open minded and can explain it to me, if they're saying this is how it is and I say, OK, well, why is it that way? And if it's because I said so. It's the same reason I used to ask my parents, well, why can't I do that? Well, because I said so. That's never a good reason. Yeah, no, yeah, and that's an authoritarian response. You know, right. it's, it, uh, it, it, the, the big, I guess the big problem for me is that so much of the rhetoric that we see from, quote, reasonable Republicans, you know, because there's, there's two groups, obviously, and the, the reasonable Republicans are, are becoming uh, so small a group that it's, it's, they're almost insignificant in their own party. But even from them, a lot of it is almost safe-based in their, their, their uh, uh, approach. It's, it's like they, they argue from a set of positions that have been proven wrong mm-hmm. in reality. And if you're not willing to accept that there's been an error, you know, <laughs> how can you, how can you address the error? Um, I, I, and I'm not saying that again, you know, as I say, progressives don't have the perfect solutions, but we're at least offering an attempt at solutions. And I, I believe honestly that most progressives would be happy to negotiate uh, with conservatives towards a common goal. Uh, but we're not even talking about the same goals. We're not even talking about the same problems. I mean, in, 19, in the 1980s, for, for all the, the, the hostility that you know existed between 
Republicans and Democratic uh, Democrats and progressives and conservatives, we all kind of agreed upon the same issues. Right. <laughs> you know, we kind of agreed that, for example, uh, there was discrimination against black people. You know, that was that was something we had in common. But the solutions that each side was offering to deal with it were different. Different, right. You know, uh, progressives were saying, oh, we need to have, you know, affirmative action. Republicans were saying, no, what we need is economic uh, uh, activity zones, you know, where they can get reduced taxes and, you know, have a better option, you know, to, to work. Now, as it turns out, that idea probably wouldn't have worked, you know, but it was an idea. Right. <laughs> now, what you have is, People saying, "Well, uh, there are there is no race problem, right? You know, <laughs> head, there is head, no problem heads in the sand to be addressed. Heads in the sand. Yeah. yeah, and and you know you can't you can't really negotiate with someone who won't even who won't even accept that there's an issue to negotiate. Yeah, you know, and that's really where we are. Uh, you know, we talk about the polarization uh, of of the country, and it really feels like we're we're trying to cross a bridge." You know, as 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 two people trying to cross a bridge and one person is, you know, trying to hold the bridge steady and the other one is attacking it with a machete. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> I, just, I don't see that we have much in common to discuss. You know, yeah, there's no there's no there's no starting point. And I, I agree with yeah. you. And I think a, a perfect example is gun control. Right. Like, in, in my opinion, does take away the guns it's out of control with these school, sh school shootings or whatever and we we will point you know the, the progressives will point their finger at other countries where guns are much more restricted and they'll say look they don't have the number of of you know school shootings and what have you and and right. on the right they're like no no we, you can't take away that fundamental right it doesn't work you know uh, uh have stricter well, gun laws totally won't work yeah i'm like you know what can we just try it and see let's just try it and see yeah. because what we're doing now is not working let's just try it and see they, they disagree that that what we're doing now doesn't work. Right. You know, it's like they, they don't they literally do not see a problem with kids being killed at school. Their solution is not less guns. It's more guns. You know, yeah. we need to arm the teachers. Okay. <laughs> you know, we need to allow teenagers to bring guns to school. That's the latest thing. Right. You know, and one, yeah. of the, one of the I think Wisconsin you know, just passed uh, or is attempting to pass a law allowing open carry of guns by by kids in school. I mean, it, this is lunacy and it's clear lunacy and you can't really debate with people who, who start from that position. You know, let's say, for example, I don't believe it's possible to have an America without guns. I mean, it just, first of all, they're, they're just there now. Right. <laughs> we, we, we're not going to get rid of them. Uh, we might be able to do something like what Australia did, you know, and, and buy back some guns. Uh, but the, the truth is we're probably not going to get rid of them. So how about, we all agree that we need to like uh, set up training centers, yeah. you know, and, and do more um, uh, to, to keep guns out of the hands of people who are clearly not qualified to have them. How about we set an age limit like we do for anything else? You know, how about we just, you know, start making people conscious of their responsibilities? You know, we just, that would seem to be something that we as conservatives could agree with, but no, anything that re that remotely implies some kind of restriction on quote their freedom uh, is abhorrent. 
you know, and it's yeah. just, it's crazy to me because it's, it, 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 you're basically denying that you live with other people. <laughs> you know, yeah. that your needs are the only needs that matter, which is the ultimate uh, sophistic narcissism, uh, which is an essential part of the American identity. We'll have to admit it, but, you know, I, I'm hoping that I would have hoped that we could have grown up a little bit, you know, but yeah, clearly we have not yet. <laughs> I mean, two, two, 200 years later. And, and it's, it's like in the last 30 years of those, well, I guess 230. Uh, yeah. It seems like we've become, it, it, we've, we've devolved. We've become more immature, more selfish yes. as a society. It's, it's, it's too bad. But but you know hey let's let's talk some comics you know everybody welcome yeah, to comics because for political I'm sure discourse. by this point everybody's everybody's turned off the podcast. Yeah, everybody's turned it off by now. But no, let's talk some comics. I've I've heard you say uh, many times in many interviews about uh, the favorite of your uh, characters that you've you've created is Firestorm. You know, and, that, and, that, and that's a good one to start from because Ronnie Raymond is somewhat uh, immature. So to, talk to us a little bit about about formulating the hero and what your idea was. Uh, with Firestorm, because uh, he is a favorite of mine, of your, of your sure. creations. Uh, well, I think, I, I mean, there, I, there were a couple of, uh, there were several uh, uh, impulses here. I mean, one was having written Spider-Man for Marvel, I really enjoyed writing an adolescent character. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to create an adolescent character. And secondly, I wanted to, uh, I had had this uh, name floating around in my head for a long time, Firestorm. And the, the idea of, uh, you know, a, a nuclear powered character. And then that led to, you know, what, what is nuclear fission, fusion, uh, fusing, take two characters, put them together. Uh, I was also inspired by uh, a take that uh, Roy Thomas had in Captain Marvel, the, uh, the Marvel Captain Marvel, he had, he, you know, as, as he would tell you, he's a huge uh, uh, Fawcett Captain Marvel fan. Mm -hmm. um, and he obviously was always struck by the idea of Billy Batson, you know, uh, turning into uh, uh, Captain, the superpowered Captain Marvel. But he did this neat little thing for a brief time in uh, the Captain Marvel comic uh, at, from Marvel where uh, Rick Jones and uh, Marvell were sharing a body together. Right. And, you know, when, when Rick Jones uh, uh, was Rick Jones, you know, Captain Marvel was inside his head. And when uh, Captain Marvel was Captain Marvel, uh, Rick Jones was in his side, inside his head. Uh, so it, it wasn't similar to what I had with, with uh, I mean, it wasn't completely similar with what I had with, uh, Ronnie Raymond and Professor Stein, each of whom, you know, was an individual who then combined together into one being. Uh, but it did spark this thought in my head that it would be kind of cool to have this older character floating around in your head um, as a teenager. You know, we, we carry our parents, you know, <laughs> inside our heads. Right. We carry adult voices inside our heads. And it's kind of a battle between us you know, our willfulness, our, our, uh, uh, our childishness, our, our growing adult, you know, uh, independence uh, against that voice, you know, that's mm -hmm. that second guessing us and telling us, 
you know, we're making a mistake, you know, or we're trying something we shouldn't be trying and the defiance that uh, it provokes. So that all of that contributed and it gave me the opportunity, you know, to, uh, to combine all of that uh, and to create this, uh, this character, you know, that was my, uh, my opportunity to write a teenager again. And the other aspect of it was that I thought it would be neat to turn the superhero formula on its head, which was, you know, the, the, the geeky guy gets superpowers and, uh, you know, shows everybody just how great he secretly was. But in this case, Ronnie wasn't the geeky guy. He was the, 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 the studly uh, sports dude. Uh, who gets superpowers and shows how incompetent he is, <laughs> that, you know, because he's not very good at what he's doing, you know, right. he, he gets better, but, you know, initially he's just sort of flailing around. Did that, did that idea feed into what you chose for his path? I mean, he, here's a guy who probably got a C at best in chemistry, but he has the ability <laughs> yes. to transmute things, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it makes it fun that, that he doesn't really know how his own powers work. Uh, and he does need that voice in his head to help him out. Uh, but it is, uh, it's part of the, you know, they, they, one of the things I love about comics is that when, in some cases, you know, I mean, other cases, they're, they're much more serious. But in most cases, there's a sense of fun and, and uh, uh, self-mockery about, about them. And that, that was something that Stan uh, introduced, you know, to Marvel, mm -hmm. uh, that I always enjoyed, you know, the idea that, that none of these characters took themselves that seriously and the, um, uh, the creators, while they, uh, definitely took the story seriously, they didn't take the idea of superheroes that seriously. Right. So Ronnie, Ronnie provided me with the opportunity to write that kind of character, uh, you know, basically jokey, fun, silly character. Yeah, do you, he so he came along at a, at a time when DC was expanding, you know, uh, an artist mm -hmm. Mel, Al Milgram did an incredible job. Uh, and then all of a sudden we, we had the, uh, the DC implosion and he, he yeah. goes away. But luckily you were, you were writing another series at the time. But I, I wonder, do you, do you remember how you felt when you heard, OK, yeah, may, maybe Firestorm, this new character has some potential, but we're going to have to to cancel this series. Was that? Was that tough? Oh, it was devastating because because I actually had uh, three or four series go down. Uh, you know, I had that. Uh, Steel was also uh, in production. Oh, right. mm -hmm. uh, we had like five issues of Steel out and we were just starting up uh, Dixon. Mm. Uh, you know, we were in the, the, uh, the, the art stage on the first issue of, of Dixon. Uh, and I, I think I had another another book that was also lined up, but I, at this point I don't recall what it was. Right. But it was it, it hadn't you know gotten to the full approval stage yet. Um, it was devastating because I, I knew that with Firestorm we had something special. I, I you know, and and I I definitely had a lot of belief in Vixen uh, as a character. Steel, uh, you know, was was a bit more uh, derivative and. Uh, not as uh, unique, you know, as, as uh, it, it later became, you know, when, when we developed it for JLA and then uh, subsequently uh, Jeff Johns, you know, reinterpreted it uh, a number of years later. But all of those characters had a lot of potential for me. And I was determined that I was gonna find some way to bring them 
bring them back into DC continuity and, and find some room for them. Yeah. And so Firestorm pretty quickly after he, uh, his initial series got canceled, you brought him into the, the JLA, right? What, what was, yeah. Yeah. was there any pushback? Cause I mean, at the time the JLA was, you know, these were the guys, you know, you're talking Batman, Superman, Wonder mm-hmm. Woman, obviously. Um, and then eventually that in your run that evolved and we'll talk about that in a minute, but uh, yeah, bringing in the the new guy who, who, as we were said, isn't really that competent. Was there any pushback editorially or did they just think, Hey, it's uh, for a good story. Not, not really. I think by that point, Len Wein was the editor uh, mm. of the, of the book and uh, he, he liked the character too. And we knew that we needed to get some, uh, younger, uh, you know, uh, younger uh, characters into the book. Um, you know, we had the established uh, big league characters, obviously, uh, but it was it was also necessary to have some characters who didn't have their own titles, uh, just to to give you the opportunity to to write some ongoing, you know, character material that just focused on those characters and. Uh, as soon as I had the opportunity to put him in, you know, I, I, I put him in. Uh, I think actually his first reappearance was in Action Comics in a Superman story. Uh, I, I got to bring him in. That was with Julie Schwartz's editor. So, uh, you know, there, were, there, there was definitely a willingness to, to, to bring the character in. I think most people at DC felt that was that the... the uh, uh, implosion was a disaster and that we should try to salvage all of the, the material that we could, you know, mm-hmm. from those books. And so then when you got the word that came down and said, okay, we're going to, we're going to relaunch with the number one, as, as devastated as you were, that must've been, a, you know, the, the opposite. Oh, end of the spectrum, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And to work with uh, Pat Broderick, who had been doing these uh, uh, backup stories in flash, uh, was just just terrific you know i mean he uh, is such a different artist uh, conceptually from milburn but both of them with a kind of a cartoonist background uh you know creating things that were larger than uh, characterizations that were larger than life uh in very different styles but you know the same impulse uh so it was uh it was a real great opportunity to work with pat you know on those first uh dozen or two issues that uh, he was able to do yeah and that series actually had a, had a had a very long run and eventually like you said jeff johns changed some things around and then eventually we got to the point where <laughs> i still think it's strange for because i i'm so into your classic version but martin steen's out in the universe in space as this fire elemental and then uh jason roush yeah. did you did you follow along with any of, of that version at all I have I have a tendency after I leave a book to to like not follow it because I I, I don't think it's fair for me to have a, an opinion usually on other writers' characters because mm. you know I take over from other writers uh, right. and and they they have their issues, um, but w- when it comes to Firestorm, I just feels like feel like DC has so mismanaged that character for the last thirty years. I don't understand because it's such a such a simple. Right. Uh, clear concept and you don't need to fix it. You know, mm-hmm. you can do all kinds of things to make make it more relevant, you know, certainly, um, you know, but you, the, the basic premise of, you know, uh, a high school jock with with a uh, an middle aged professor's mind overlooking overlooking him, as I say, it's an archetype. It's, right. it's that 
that that uh, sense that we all have as teenagers that they're that the adults are looking over our shoulder. Um, so that works, you know, and, and without that, all you've got is, a, is another variation of the, the, the superpowered character who can make things out of thin air. Right. Uh, you know, do it however you want, but that's what it boils down to. Uh, his powers are not what makes him make him iconic. You know, the, the flame head certainly is a great look. Um, but what really makes him iconic is, is his uh, dual uh, alter ego. I never understand. I, I just honestly don't understand why it's so hard for some writers to take the ball and run with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they suddenly feel that they need to change the rules of the game and to, and to just go in a different direction. Well, okay, but then why not just make up your own character? You know, <laughs> you know, you've got. It's like with with Superman. It would be like deciding, okay, let's do a story about this superpowered being, but let's not have him come from another planet. Let's have him actually have been secretly born here as a mutant, you know, on Earth. Okay, well, now we're going into a totally different, you know, uh, uh, archetype. Uh, Why would you do that? You you know, you you either do a Superman story or don't do a Superman story. Right. that's that's sort of my 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 attitude on these things is that figure out what the what makes this character an archetype and then do the archetype right you know update it do whatever you need to do to, to make it relevant to today uh, you know if you, if you want to make it a a, a, you know, a a minority character that's fine that doesn't change anything mm-hmm. um, but. <sighs> you want to change his sex that's fine too doesn't change anything you know in fact do that you know make make something else out of it but don't change the dynamic that makes that character unique because then you're just you know it it would be like batman's parents you know live to a a good old age and he just decides to become a philanthropic superhero because Mm -hmm. that's what he wants to do no, yeah. he's driven yeah. by the by the loss of his parents. You know, you don't you don't change that without changing the the reason for that character's existence. Yeah, and, and I mean, I feel that's that's perfectly valid because I mean, I fell off a of firestorm right right around that time when it wasn't mm-hmm. it wasn't Ronnie and, and Martin anymore. And it could have been somebody else other than Ronnie, but yeah, that dynamic was yeah. gone, and and yeah, it was it was yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, the the, the, clear, the clear fact is that the books the book was successful for five or six years, and then wasn't, <laughs> and no revival of it has been. Right. And what's the difference between the 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 successful era and the revivals and the re- revamps? I, yeah. I think it's pretty obvious. You know, yeah. it's uh, you can either accept that and try to fix it. You know, or ignore it and, and uh, continue to make a mess. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. Uh, well, let's let's flip over to the other side of the street. I'm going to jump around a little bit, and, and this is going to be a fun conversation. Obviously, uh, when you talk about subverting uh, archetypes here, um, Spider-Man would be uh, a big one, right? When we talk about, mm-hmm. okay, here's the initial idea of this teenage kid in high school who has all these challenges. He's not good with girls. He's not good socially. Exactly. Um, and I get it. He's been around for decades and you're, you're struggling to tell new stories, 
But at the same time, if you change it too much, if you get him married, if he has kids, if, you know, there's all this stuff. And I know it's maybe not the most popular uh, stance to take, but at the, at the same time, we've got to bring in new readers. And I feel like what Marvel's done in a lot of cases in, in terms of, of Spider-Man is kind of lean into the older readers and, and have tried to continue to entertain them as, as they've gotten older, yeah. rather than let's get back to telling the stories of, you know, P- Peter is not going to own a company that's worth a billion. No, you no, know? yeah, no, it's, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're, you're missing the point, you know, uh, I mean, first of all, the easiest way to tell what, what is the most uh, iconic version of a character is what version did the movie studios decide to adapt. Right. <laughs> and, you know, in every single adaptation of Spider-Man, he has been a teenager. Uh, there, there has never been a 30-year-old Peter Parker uh, movie, except in the Spider-Verse, where he's introduced as this kind of burned-out guy into the Spider-Verse. But that's in order to introduce Miles Morales, who is a teenager with with all the same geeky problems that Peter Parker had. That's why Miles Morales right now is the only authentic Spider-Man in my mind, (laughs) because he's the one that's actually representing what that character was originally designed to be. Again, what's the archetype? Do the archetype. Uh, And you can't tell me that I mean, certainly Marvel has gotten a lot of success, you know, uh, sales success from all these multiple uh, 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 titles, you know, Spider-Man titles. But I I feel like that's riding on the coattails of his film success Mm. uh, and that they're not building out, you know, the readership that would actually embrace a Peter Parker who's a teenager. You know, that's the teenage, that's who people want to see. I mean, we want to see Tom Holland as a teenager because he was a teenager. That's why he was probably the most uh, effective Spider-Man of the, of the three major Spider-Mans in the 21st century. Um, because, you know, he seemed like a real kid. You know, he seemed like someone who would have all the problems that Peter Parker you know, has and, and make the mistakes that Peter Parker would make, you know, and be, be overly uh, confident, and, you know, and, you know, adolescent, uh, you know, that that's what the charm of the character has always been, or at least was. Uh, and the idea that you have to age him up, you know, from, from in the first 10 years of his uh, uh, time as a character, he aged three years, maybe, you know, I mean, I, I think you went from him being maybe a high school sophomore, junior to being a college freshman. Mm-hmm. And that was it, you know, and, and, and that was it for many years. You know, I don't think they ever, uh, I don't think they graduated in, in college until somewhere into the, or, or, or had them leave college until somewhere in the eighties. Um, you know, around the time that he and MJ got married, which was a huge mistake. Um, but as you say, it's trying to reach, you know, the, the, the readers who read him before. And the, the, I, I just feel like it's such a wrongheaded notion to try to maintain 
the same readership rather than cultivating, you know, a new readership. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm nostalgic for old characters. You know, I, I love seeing new versions of characters. <clears throat> Absolutely. I, I think there's a, there is room for a 30 year old Peter Parker, but that should be the, the exception, you know, that, right. that should be the stories like, like uh, just like the dark Knight returns made for a terrific one shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you turn that into the entire premise of the character, it, starts becoming annoying right you know um when uh, i did i did an alternate universe version of peter and mary jane uh with a with a a kid you know which was uh, renew your vows right and that was fun you know i i had a lot of fun writing it because it's a uh it's an interesting take uh it 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 provided me with the opportunity to, to to fool around with things that uh would not be possible in the main book. Um, but that's how you should treat all those older versions of Peter, you know, as alternate takes, you know, they have a multiverse, you know, just right. do, do Peter Parker as a 30 year old in, in another universe. Don't, and keep Peter Parker. And I don't know how you do this today because Marvel is, messed up their continuity so so thoroughly over the decades you know it's it's it, it would be hard to, to wind it back um, but you know ideally you cancel all, i've said this before you know you cancel all the books you start up with number one uh after a six-month hiatus you know just I mean, marvel as a publishing outfit does not need to make money Right. (laughs) It really doesn't. That's just Ike Perlmutter's uh, obsession, you know, but as an adjunct of of, uh, Disney, Marvel is an IP generator. Mm -hmm. Um, It's it it doesn't need to make money. So under those circumstances, cancel your books, you know, spend six months, let the readership, let the readers go insane you know waiting for something to happen uh and then bring it all back but bring it back to the original you know have don blake find a find a uh a a stick of wood in a in a a norwegian cave have uh reed and uh, reed richards and sue storm and johnny uh, johnny and ben go take a flight you know to the iss you know do do just start over, you know, and, and get back to what made these characters fun and exciting in the beginning. Um, you know, and then if you want to publish a second line, like DC has black label, do that, you know, create, you know, for, for those people who really need to see Peter Parker running a company, right. Do that, you know, (laughs) fine, but it's not, it shouldn't be your main line. Your main line should be the characters as People want to see them based on the archetypes that they represent. Yeah, well, I would say to that that uh, the success of the Ultimate line when it first started, because it, it was sort of that, right? Yeah. Like when yeah. Brian Michael Bendis yeah. relaunched Spider-Man with Ultimate Spider-Man, that thing sold like hotcakes. Absolutely. People wanted to see young Peter Parker. And, and modernized. Wanted... He was modernized, yeah, but it was. Absolutely. Up to date. And, and you could do it again now. You know, I mean, it's 25 years later, you know, yeah. for God's sake, you know, we could certainly uh, reboot these things. I mean, 
you know, the Silver Age started with Flash uh, in 1956, only about five years after the last appearance of the Flash. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like, and, uh, you know, when I took over Spider-Man, I, I came in at issue 111 of the original Amazing Run. Uh, they're up to issue 87 of the current Amazing Run. Mm -hmm. You know, they could just stop. <laughs> you know, they could stop all of their books, clean it up, simplify it down for a young readership, you know, or, or uh, a younger readership, publish it. And, and again, this is not saying you have to, like, abandon your older readers, but just recognize that the, the people who discover Marvel through the movies are not going to be interested in the characters that you're creating uh, right. or that you're telling stories about. Yeah, where um, the, the continuity for them is decades old. They feel like they've already yeah. missed, missed the boat. Yeah, and, and what they see is, you know, uh, something that doesn't, doesn't fulfill the expectations that they have mm -hmm. based on the films. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you got to watch, you got to figure that out. And, uh, it would really be good if 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 somehow uh, Disney just took you know Marvel Comics Group away from uh, Perlmutter and uh, just treated it as an IP generator, mm -hmm. and also treated it the way that they treat their own characters, which is giving the, the people who want to read Mickey Mouse Mickey Mouse. Right. You know, I'm I'm not saying that that's the greatest thing in the world. You know. I'm just saying that if you want to read Mickey Mouse and you pick up a, 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 a Mickey Mouse comic from whichever company has now got the, the, the rights, it's Mickey Mouse. Right. <laughs> it's not some aged up version of Mickey Mouse yes, dealing with parental yeah. issues with, with, with uh, uh, Minnie. It's Mickey Mouse. And, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, we said earlier, you know, I'm a progressive. And I am absolutely a progressive, but when it comes to uh, to comics, I guess I'm something of a conservative. Right. Uh, not in the sense of being unwilling to see new things, but just the desire to conserve what made those things valuable and workable in the first place, and and what they spoke to in the readers that that first fell in love with them. Could they could speak to now, you know, right. to other readers. Yeah, I think, was it Stan that said, you've got to balance the, the illusion of change uh, yes. with, with actually creating, you know, new, new stories Like you got to challenge yourself. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine as, as a writer, that might be the hardest thing about writing comics, right? Like you, you have to stay oh, sure. true to who they are and yet you're, you need to tell new stories. Exactly. Yeah, it's true. Uh, I'm, tr I'm trying to think of, a, of, a, of, a, of an example that, uh, well, the illusion of change was always Stan's mantra. And, and Julie Schwartz had, had a, a, a different take on it. But I remember uh, there, DC used to do this thing in the 60s of, of a, a, a weekly tour during the summer of mm -hmm. their offices. And I went on one of those, or I actually went on a, a number of them. But uh, on one of them, Julie Schwartz came out and was talking to, you know, to some of the, the fans on the tour. 
and some, and I asked him some question, you know, some dumb question, you know, about uh, why didn't this happen? Why didn't that happen? Things should change, you know, whatever. It was just being, you know, your typical teenage fan. And Julie said, uh, how old are you? <laughs> I said, I'm, I'm 15. He says, you're too old. He said, you know, <laughs> our readers are 10 to 13. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> and, and he said, the thing is, you know, what you have to understand is uh, uh, kids pick up comics at 10 and they read them till about they're about 13 and then they discover other things and they move on to those other things. You're you're too old. Uh, and that's why we can basically recycle, recycle. the same stories yeah. every three years. <laughs> yeah. Now, I'm not saying that that's ideal, but recognizing that truth, you mm -hmm. know, is, I think, would be liberating for comic book creators to realize that there's nothing wrong with telling the same story in a slightly different way. But you're, you're a minstrel, you know, like a medieval minstrel. You go to a castle and you sing the songs that the people want to hear because they're familiar songs to them. And they answer some need that they have for making sense of their lives at that moment. Yeah. And that's your job. Your job is not to like tell new stories that don't answer those needs. Um, you know, you can do that. I, again, I'm not saying you, we shouldn't do it. I'm saying we should do it, but in a different format or a different, uh, uh, a different line, uh, you know, whatever, but don't give up on that essential uh, role that you play as a, as a creator of mythology of telling the myth, mm -hmm. you know, I wonder, I mean, you, you've got your, you got your start on Spider-Man so, so young, you know, you're 19, Stan doesn't want to do it anymore. You know, I think there was basically, you guys had what, three or four writers at Marvel at that time and a Stan yeah. boy and, and you, and I think people don't, don't realize that they don't realize because they look at what the machine of comics now. And it's very, very much like you said, an IP farm and it's such a huge industry and, and at the center of pop culture, which I could never have imagined when I was a kid. It is weird. When, yeah. Comics from still more underground or you didn't tell people cause you don't want to get beat up on the playground. Um, but what I find to be interesting is the fact that you guys are creating these stories. Uh, and I'm specifically thinking of your clone saga with the Jackal, you know, Miles Warren and Gwen mm -hmm. and, you know, you'd killed Gwen and Stan had been, you know, Stan loved Gwen and no, you got to bring her back. You create this clone of Peter Parker in no way ever thinking he's going to come back as another character later. Right. On, right? <laughs> like, like, and now he's become so like right now, as we're talking, he is the main Spider-Man. Like, would you have done things differently? Like, so, so, how, do you, how do you feel about Ben Riley? I'm, I'm curious. I, I, you know, it's funny. I mean, I, I can't really take credit for Ben Riley because the, the Spider-Man clone that I created uh, was the plot device, you know, mm -hmm. more than a person. Um, and, uh, you know, the people who followed me years later, you know, definitely created that character. Um, so, but it is weird. I mean, it is a weird, but, you know, there's a character called, uh, there, there was a, I, I'm going to, I'm going to diverge and I shouldn't do that. I'm just, just to answer specifically this question, when you're, when you're creating stuff, uh, at the time, you'd never think about how it might ultimately uh, turn out. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, you, at least for me, uh, when, when I was doing it back 50 years ago, uh, I was 
making monthly comics, mm-hmm. you know, that, that had to meet deadlines, uh, you know, at, at a page rate that, that meant that I had to write a lot in order to make a living. Um, and uh, we were not working in a, in a field that had uh, uh, a great future ahead of it. <laughs> I'd say, you know, our sales were dropping, you know, on a monthly basis. We saw the handwriting on the wall that these companies were not, uh, not going anywhere, you know, Uh, and we really struggled in the seventies. I mean, the, the, the the field was in dire straits until Phil Sulling came along with the the notion of direct sales, Mm -hmm. which was both a savior and a destructor, you know, Um, because it saved, saved the business. But it changed, uh, you know, and it changed our audience right. in the in the way that uh, you know we've been discussing. Uh, and from, it's still challenging uh, now to bring in new readers because of that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, how does a how does a parent who I have I have a, a grandson, and weirdly, my my son in law uh, was a comic book fan of mine. It's <laughs> <You know? laughs> surreal. That, that, yeah, I mean, he, it, it's funny because you know when uh, when he met my uh, my daughter and they were dating, and he realized that uh, who her father was, it was like blew him away and, and <laughs> apparently sealed the deal for her, uh, <laughs> or at least that that's what I kiddingly say. But the thing is that he, he is trying to find ways to keep his to, to get his son and interested in comics mm-hmm. and there are very limited options you mm-hmm. know for, for them ways in um you know he, he, basically the disney channel spider-man cartoon shows are one way in you know spider-man and his amazing friends mm-hmm. uh, but there's not a comic that he can pick up necessarily and just let his kid try to read the kid's five years old mm-hmm. uh and it would be difficult for for him to really get into almost anything, or even right. have it read to him, uh, you know, these days. So it's it's a tough situation, and that doesn't even encompass the uh, the practicalities of needing to go to a specific store. Right. You know, when I discovered comics, I was at a candy store in Brooklyn, and there was a rack. Right, and it was at my eye level, <laughs> and I asked my mom if I could buy one, and it was a quarter or it was ten cents, so it wasn't a big expense. It wasn't something she had to think twice about. Mm-hmm. You know, she said sure, uh, and I was off. Today, let's say that for, in some weird uh, circumstance, a, a, a unwitting parent and their kid wander into a comic book store because they see something colorful in the window you know, of a, of a strip mall and they go in and the kid discovers a comic book and he comes to his mother and says, can I buy this? And the mother looks at it and it's five bucks. (laughs) And she thinks, says to herself, I could buy a box of cereal for this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That'll feed my family for three or four days. And, and, you know, maybe she says, Oh, okay, honey, you know, I'll get it for you. And the kid gets it. And, he takes it home and he pours over it for about five minutes and he's done yeah. and he wants another one. And mom looks at him and, uh, you know, I can't afford this. <laughs> I'm sorry. Son. You know, there's going to be parents that will plunge, but 
you know, with, with the economy, uh, with, with the average worker making what the average worker makes in this country, you can't excuse a $5 comic book, you know, yeah. for 25 pages at, at the max, you know, it's just criminal. Yeah. Oh, anyway, anyway, getting back to, to Ben Ben Riley before I derail, <laughs> derailed you. Yeah, I'm sorry. This is what happens. I just I just go off. I'm I'm an I'm an old one. No, I love it. I love it. I, it I, I, that's what I wanted to talk about at that moment. So it's fine. But yeah, but let's get back to to Ben because uh, as you were you, you were saying, you know, you you created him as a plot device, and you're not you're not ever imagining comics being the center of pop culture, this sort of enduring thing to where we are now, and then years later, he's become this. I mean, like we said, he's wearing the Spider-Man costume right now. Right. right. Yeah, I, I think it's it, I think it's really interesting. You know that uh, the symbiote Spider-Man, the the, the superior Spider-Man, uh, the non-stop Spider-Man. I mean, all these variations. Um, you know, I wonder whether it's because they're struggling to to, to have a rationale for a Peter Parker Spider-Man. Mm. Uh, like we were talking know, about earlier, again going. Going back to that that core reason, if if he's not a, a teenager struggling with angst, then it's it can be anybody in the costume, right? You know, and so then you can create, you know, then you've got, and from a creative point of view, from a writer's point of view, you have options. You know, when when it's not Peter Parker, you can create, you know, take Ben Riley and. He's pretty much a blank canvas, you know. You can you can give him, you know, a, a personality disorders based on the fact that he knows he's a clone, mm-hmm. you know, and all of all of that, which make for makes it interesting for a writer, uh, and it might be interesting for a reader too. You know, obviously he's got fans. It's similar to Jason Todd, who mm-hmm. uh, you know was basically just a uh, a young Dick Grayson clone when I when I uh, created him. But through all the vagaries of uh, the reboots, you know, he becomes this kind of uh, uh, ruthless, hostile, uh, aggressive guy who will go to any lengths to do what he needs, what he believes needs to be done. And that appeals to a, to a readership, you know, because it actually does fit an archetype. It's, it's a good it's a good archetype. Uh, and. To an extent, I guess you could do the same, you know, with somebody like Ben Riley. You know, is that because of all the vagaries of, of his uh, uh, personality, uh, the things that have happened to him, that makes him a much more interesting character to write. But again, it goes back because Peter Parker, as the character who is not a teenager, is not interesting. Right. <laughs> There's nothing interesting about a 30-year-old Peter Parker, and in fact, he's he's almost tragic and sad because, you know, the idea of him going around uh, still wisecracking and, uh, you know, making floods and getting in trouble and having problems as a 30 year old is not a sign of growth. You know, it's, it's, it's a sign of something sad. And that's why the, the into the spider verse, story portrays you know the the uh the 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 older peter parker uh as this kind of sad loser you know yeah he's a sad sack yeah yeah he is a sad sack uh peter parker as a teenager is 
an archetype and he works and he, and he, and there's stories you can do with him. Peter Parker is a 30 year old is a sad guy. It's yeah. a sad case. Um, you know, I mean, unless he's, unless he's happily married and, and settled down and then there's no stories. Yeah. You know, <laughs> Yeah. So, oh, look, in this, this issue, Peter gets up and mows the lawn. Hey, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean, yeah, if you're, it, it, it's just hard to, it, it's, this is what happens. This is what happens. There's a great Stephen Sondheim musical called Into the Woods. Have you, have you seen it? Or no, it? I, have, I haven't. Okay. Uh, the, the premise is it's the, the first act is all the famous fairy tales, you know, the, the uh, Hansel and Gretel, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the Jack the Giant uh, Killer, you know, all these, all the famous fairy tales. And then the second act is what happens afterwards. Oh, yeah. And they're all kind of struggling, you know, to, 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 to live as grown-ups and, you know, deal with regular life. And, and they want to go back to the woods. You know, they want to go back to the magic of youth, the magic of, of the myth, mm-hmm. you know, that they embodied. Because there is no, once the happily ever after is boring as shit. Yeah. Right. Um, and there's no story there. So once Peter Parker graduates from school and becomes an adult, there's no story there. Um and that's, I think, why you, you see them struggling with all these, these gimmick stories to right. create something out of nothing. You know, you, you kill off Peter Parker for two years and you have Doc Ock take over his body because that creates conflict. Yeah. Uh, and it gives you something to work with. Uh, you know, you create Ben, you bring Ben Riley in because, again, it gives you something to work with because you have thoroughly screwed up your main character. <laughs> yeah. By, by, yeah. By evolving him too much. Well, does, does that, that inherent um, challenge uh, to try to create the illusion of change and, and, you know, you can't, you can't age them up without, as, as we said, making them seem sort of sad and broken in a way, does that make villains easier? Right. Because one of the last ongoings that you you've written in your career was carnage. Right. And he's somebody who just inherently, who he is as a character, his archetype, to go back to what we're talking about, yes. is something that inherently creates uh, conflict. So was that a, a really joyous project to be a part of for that reason? Yeah, well, it was a lot of fun for a lot of reasons. You know, the pitch that was made to me was uh, uh, Nick Lowe, the, the editor, said, you know, we want, you, we want to do a version of Carnage. And the basic idea we have uh, that we want to pitch to you is Tomb of Dracula. Uh, mm. that, our, our fo- that, that our focus will be on what would normally be the supporting cast, mm. you know, the people pursuing him. Right. And I thought that was great because it, it allowed me to keep Carnage as a fulcrum. You know, mm. he, was, he was the, uh, the thing everybody pivoted around. Right. Uh, and as such, you know, you don't have to do anything in terms of changing any character. There's no arc for him. He's just a an vile evil person <laughs> right and that and and that was fun to write you know because of that and then the other characters could have arcs could have uh stories that you know because they were they were minor characters that that didn't have a substantial uh, uh mythology that they needed to fulfill mm-hmm. carnage's mythology uh, uh you know is the unrepentant uh, uh serial killer 
you know, it's uh, he's the Zodiac killer, uh, you know, uh, who who you're pursuing, uh, you know, like the, the great film Zodiac um, and and his effect on the others is what's important. Uh, and villains in general shouldn't shouldn't have redemptive arcs unless they're a single story mm. villain. You know, uh, I, I always love the fact that Dr. Doom, as an example, uh, could potentially have a, re- a redemptive arc. Uh, and at various times, you know, there have been there have been efforts to give him that kind of an arc. Uh, but you always come back to the fact that he is he is a a complete narcissist. Right. <laughs> and, and, and if you are a complete narcissist, there is no redemption. You know, mm-hmm. you, you can act well for a time, but you can't change. Uh, it's just your personality. Yeah. Uh, there is no, there is, you know, there's no, nowhere to go. Even when Disney does these, these uh, revisional stories, you know, taking evil characters and 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 uh, telling a new version of them where they're the they're, they're the victims or they're they're misunderstood or whatever we know that that's not the main character right that's an alternate universe version mm-hmm. of malignant you know that's an maleficent that's a, an alternate universe of, uh, of of cruella uh because cruella really does want to kill the dogs yes <laughs> the real cruella is more interested in her fashion than she is in solving some internal uh problem you know that that she has um and disney kind of gets that you know that's why they do them as uh uh live action films you know uh they're they're not doing a new animated version of Mm -hmm. cruella uh they're not doing a new animated version of of uh snow white uh, of of, of sleeping beauty they're doing a, a you know a quote adult version you know uh of the character and that, that could be what DC and Marvel do, too. I mean, DC, I think, handles it a lot better than Marvel does at this point because they're constantly rebooting their universe. So right. they can constantly say, oh, all of that stuff that, that happened you know, didn't happen, and now we're doing this again. Um, and it gives you the opportunity to just recapitulate, you know. Um, anyway. Well, Marvel Marvel did a really good one. I don't, I don't know. You, you mentioned Doctor Doom. I don't know if you've read it, but uh, Christopher Cantwell... Uh, did a Doctor Doom series most most recently, where and I should have known better because it's exactly what you said. Doom is this unrepentant narcissist, and Christopher really did make us think that maybe Doom what was going to evolve, and then at the end, the last issue, he pulled the rug out from under us, and Doom was just Doom, and it was it yeah. was fantastic. Yeah. It was so good. Yeah, and that's why it worked, right? Yeah. Yes. Because, exactly. You know, you, he's leading you to expect something. I see that the the great the, the trick of great storytelling is to tell you the same story, but not let you know that you're being told the same story. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> <You know laughs> and uh, I think Tom King does that beautifully as well, yes. you know, over at DC with Batman. Uh, you know, he, he spent uh, uh, almost uh, eight years, you know, uh, writing, I guess, the, what I would consider the definitive Batman of the last 20 years. And managed to basically not change anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? and, and even the big change that, that occurred in the book, you know, the death of Alfred, uh, I have to feel is going to be, uh, if it hasn't already been rebooted in some way. Yeah, Because, it will be. you know, that's an iconic relationship. Um, 
but you know they managed to he he managed to tell the story that's been told before in a way that made you feel like it was potentially going to have a different outcome than it was going to always going to have you know the the love affair with catwoman you know the 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 fight with the joker the 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 uh issues around the river i mean all of it felt new but it all filled the the archetypes that were necessary yeah yeah he does it all the time he did it most recently for me in his strange adventures that he did with uh, mitch garrett's and uh, and Doc Shaner, oh, yeah. where he he had me convinced after issue ten that it was actually Alana, Doctor uh, Adam Strange's wife, that was the villain. And then no, it was it was Adam all along. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you love as a reader if you're have been reading comics as long as you and I have to to have something that surprises you is definitely always a pleasure. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, he's a very smart writer. Yes, uh, yeah, fantastic, and a fantastic guy. Uh, been on the show many times. Uh, you know, we, we've been talking, you know, specifically when we talked about uh, Ben Riley, we're talking about something that you created as a plot device and then somebody else later on took that creation and, and did something else. In the case of Carol Danvers, it was sort of on the, she was on the other foot. You know, your good friend Roy mm-hmm. Thomas creates Carol uh, and then you're charged with, hey, let's actually make her more than just Carol Danvers. Let's make her Miss Marvel. Uh, and obviously now she's become Captain Marvel. She has her own MCU um, uh, movie and, and whatnot. I know you didn't spend a lot of time writing her. And I, I think I've heard you say you had other ideas for her, but, but talk a little bit about stepping into the shoes of another writer and, and needing to flesh out somebody else's creation. Is that a challenge? Is it just a pleasure? Cause you don't have to create them whole cloth. What's that experience? Well, like? it was it, that in the case of Ms. Marvel, my marching orders were to create a superhero called Ms. Marvel. <laughs> that was it. Wow, a lot of direction uh, there, huh? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Stan wanted, you know, it was it was during the period of like She-Hulk and, uh, you know, these. it was about creating uh, uh, IP that, that uh, uh, was protecting Marvel, in, basically. Yeah, lo- uh, locked in a, a, a title. So uh, Ms. Marvel, uh, and, I, and I had no, uh, there was nothing, you know. So my thought was, how can I tie this into Captain Marvel and to the, the Cree and, and so forth and make it feel like it's an outgrowth of uh, an ongoing story rather than something we're just making out of whole cloth, you know, like right. introducing uh, Bruce Banner's uh, long unknown cousin, you know, mm-hmm. as, as was done with She-Hulk. Um, so I looked back at those, those original issues and I realized that here's this uh, female character, Carol Danvers, who has a role in the, the stories that's not very well developed, but, you know, it's she's there uh, and uh, she has proximity uh, to Captain Marvel and it wasn't a great leap to assume that somehow Marvell's powers could be transferred in some way to uh, to Carol. And then as a result of that, there was this notion I've always, you know, I, I sometimes play around with, which is uh, the dual, the, 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 the split identity mm. notion, you know, that mm. uh, the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a classic, uh, plot device again another archetype uh, you know the, the the Jekyll Hyde uh, 
formula. And I, I thought it would be kind of neat to have a superhero who doesn't know that they're a superhero. <laughs> so that was my original take, you know, on Carol Danvers is that she'd be this very successful, powerful person as Carol Danvers. Right. And also a very powerful superhero as Ms. Marvel and not know it <clears throat> and eventually, you know, figure it out. Uh, you know, basically, uh, my, my notion was that, you know, Carol Danvers is this head of this magazine, you know, would start thinking, oh, we should find out more about this character, Ms. Marvel, you know, and, then, and that would lead to her discovering that she was herself Ms. Marvel, Marvel yeah. <laughs> which, which would have been kind of a cool uh, turn and twist to, to, to my mind. Um, you know, Chris Claremont took the book over because uh, I was, I, I think I, I it was during my brief sojourn back at Marvel that lasted about six months that all of this took place uh, between, you know, my first uh, editorial job at, at uh, DC and then, you know, coming back to Marvel briefly and then going back to DC for the next decade. Um, and Chris just, you know, he didn't relate to any of that mm. and went his own way, which was fine. But, you know, we, 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 what it happens at that point is that without, some personal uh, internal crisis or, or something that makes that character different, she be, just becomes another superhero, yeah. you know? So without the Jekyll Hyde thing, uh, I don't think you have anything, you know, the, for the character. And that's kind of why she floated around, you know, in all these different versions and, and variations until Kelly Sue nailed it, you know, yeah. by taking on the aspect of, the military uh, persona, you know, and really grounding her uh, as, you know, this this avatar of uh, the feminine presence in the military, uh, and that gave her gave her something that anchored her and and gave her an identity uh, that she really didn't have when I, you know, when I was doing the book, you know, I was I was just fooling around with it, trying to figure it out. And when Chris took it over, you know, he, I don't think he ever felt much, much interest in it. And then subsequently you had a lot of people who were just using it for uh, using the character for plot points, you know, yeah, or, exactly. you know, filling in some other, you know, need that they felt uh, they needed for, for a super group or something else. Yeah, no, she completely, I mean, they made, they didn't know what to do. They made her binary and then she wasn't binary. And then she was back to being, war, you know, kept uh, Miss Marvel and then Warbird. And yeah, you're, you're, you're hundred yeah. percent right. But, it, but it, it's cool to see that she's coming to her own now with what oh, Kelly absolutely. Sue and then Margaret Stoll and now Kelly Thompson uh, are doing. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, basically they created that character, you know I mean? I, right. I, I feel like a grandfather rather than anything else, you know, right. the, 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 those women, are the real creators of, of Captain Marvel and, and especially Kelly Sue because of her uh, contact, even with the, uh, the, the feature film, mm -hmm. you know, as a consultant on that, she was able to give them uh, insights that I think, you know, I, I, I can't speak to it directly, but I, I have to feel that uh, uh, her insights were uh, uh, critical to making that character work. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you mentioned your your work over at DC. Let's let's jump back over uh, across the street. Uh, I know the the artist that you've had the pleasure of working with the most is uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, who you know is just fantastic. 
Uh, and I've heard you, you know, you've talked so many times about the different projects you guys have done, but, but one of the ones that I haven't heard you talk a lot about, which is, I think has a very beloved, maybe small core fan base uh, and very much of the eighties is Atari force. Sure. Uh, obviously yeah. this is a licensed property. Now you had done some, some of the mini comics that came with the actual cartridges mm -hmm. for the game, but then eventually the powers of be Atari want to have an actual regular monthly comic. Like, like how, how did that project come about? Talk about getting involved. With uh, that and, I think and working with Jose. I, I, I think what happened was uh, the, the uh, Atari company sort of was going through a financial collapse, you know, within, within Warner's, this, uh, the cartridges stopped selling, mm. uh, you know, the, the, the consoles were, were not able to compete with the, the next generation of consoles that were coming along uh, for whatever reason. I don't, I mean, I, I can't really speak to it, but uh, so they canceled our, uh, we were doing this uh, sword quest book, you mm -hmm. know, and we had the Atari force comic, uh, that, but I did both of those with Roy Thomas. Um, and when those, those were cut off, you know, when we stopped doing them, uh, basically Atari ceased to have really any input, you know, and, or, or any, uh, connection. Mm. Uh, we were, we were, uh, but we still had, uh, authority from, uh, Warner Brothers to do whatever we wanted to using the Atari name. Wow. And Jeanette Kahn was the one who said, hey, why don't we turn uh, Atari Force, the, uh, this, this little booklet, you know, into an actual comic book. Um, and <laughs> the story about how that, how that came about uh, creatively is, is, I think it's kind of amusing. I, I, they asked me to come to, uh, from California to New York to sit down with Jose and uh, Jeanette and Andy Helfer, who was the uh, editor, who would be the editor of the book, and basically create a book. Um, I came down right before I left. I came down with the worst head cold, uh, and I was like freaked out that I was going to end up on a plane, you know, and, and blow out my eardrums or something. Right. Yeah. So I took all this cold medicine to get myself uh, dried out and I kept taking it when, when I was in New York. So I was high as a kite <laughs> for about a week. Uh, I got through the flight. It was fine. You know, I was, I was fine. You know, and it, it like liberated my brain <laughs> you know, to just, just throw out the most outrageous ideas, you know, that, that I could come up with, you know, and that's why that that um, uh, team, you know, that we that we ended up creating of aliens and uh, people, and uh, you know the, these uh, interesting, you know, humans versus uh, the, these alien creatures, you know, was so uh, eclectic. You know, the idea. I said, how about a sexy insect? <laughs> so, you know, so we create this this, and only Jose could have drawn what amounted to a very feminine and sexy 
grasshopper, you know? <laughs> and, I, and I said, and, and then the strongest member of the group is like this baby mountain. <laughs> That's created Dave, you know? And, and there's another one who's like a rat. It's just a rat. <laughs> it's like, you know, pack rat, you know? It's like, it was just, we just, it, it just blew. And it became this, this uh, almost competition between Jose and I to just come up with variations on things that made, made everything more interesting. He was such a delight to work with, you know, conceptually, he's such a terrific uh, concept artist, uh, draftsman and storyteller. So once, once we got going on this, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. And Andy was a terrific uh, editor, you know, helped us form things into, you know, a good storyline. Uh, and uh, it just ran, you know, I just had a lot of fun doing it. Uh, unfortunately, as you say, you know, it was, uh, it was kind of a, uh, an under the radar project for, right. for DC. They were trying a lot of different things, you know. Um, and while everybody who was involved with it, and even the higher ups thought it was terrific, you know, we, we all thought this is one of the best things we've all done. Mm -hmm. uh, there was really no way to promote it within the DC line right. because it, it wasn't connected to anything else. You know, it didn't have an, a natural uh, base, you know, to, to uh, latch onto. And eventually you know, I, I ended up leaving the book for the reasons that I always end up leaving books. I either got bored or it fell behind. I don't even remember why uh, I left and Andy finished off the last couple of issues. Um, but it was such a, such a beautiful book. At various times I've heard that uh, companies like IDW or Dark Horse uh, were buying the, the, the rights to reprint it. Uh, I keep hoping that that's going to happen at some point because I think readers today would really get a kick out of it, you know, especially in this more eclectic market. Right. Uh, it's something that uh, could really find a, an audience. Wow. That, that is a great story. Cause I always wondered typically with licensed books, you don't see, I mean, because like you said, the ideas that you and Jose came up with were so out there. And I've always wondered for a licensed book, you know, because, because yeah. you know, it, it's, it's challenging enough like we've talked about with this illusion of change on work for higher stuff, licensed stuff, there's even more eyes, right? Typically. Yeah. Yeah. There were, there was nobody involved. You know, I mean, it was almost like working at Marvel in the early seventies where we, we were basically left free because all we took from them was the name Atari. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I say, the, the company was, uh, you know, in the midst of a organizational collapse. So there was nobody to report to. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Well, yeah, I, I, yeah, I join you in hoping it gets uh, reprinted. I mean, I have all my single issues, but I'd love a nice, you know, hardcover with, uh, you know, any any back matter that DC mm -hmm. might still have concept oh, uh, yeah. sketches or, or what have you. Uh, well, let's talk about your other longest run at DC. And I, in fact, I think it's the longest run you've ever had on a property, which was Justice League, which we touched on earlier with you bringing uh, Firestorm mm -hmm. in. Um, I've heard you say before in interviews about, you know, writing these I iconic characters, but feeling a bit restricted because those characters were doing, you know, whatever they were doing in their own book. Uh, is that eventually what led you to start using characters like Firestorm, like Vixen, like Steel to just have more sure. freedom to create? Sure. I mean, in order to do, DC was in a weird place in the late seventies, early eighties, because they knew that they had to with marvel 
creatively um, and try to reach the same kind of readers who are interested in these uh, more character-focused stories than DC traditionally had done. Um, and people like myself, Len Wein, Marv Wolfman, uh, among the writing staff, you know, were the, and Stephen Englehart, were people who were sort of pushing them in those directions. Uh, with Justice League, the tradition of Justice League had always been that it was like a uh, an adjunct book. You know, it's, it existed in its own sphere, you know, where these characters would meet, have an adventure, uh, and then go home to their home books. Right. <laughs> so there was never there was never any opportunity to really develop any of the characters. Uh, there were opportunities with some of the and, and Denny O'Neill, I think, really uh, started to do this uh, with the s- s- secondary characters who didn't have their own books. Characters like uh, Black Canary and Green Arrow, you know, were able to have story arcs, you know, mild ones, you know, because Julie Schwartz, who was senator, really didn't want to like go in that direction necessarily or feel comfortable with it. But you could do stories where there was something that happened and there was an arc for those uh, secondary heroes. Uh, When I came onto the book and, uh, you know, with the transition from Julie to uh, Len Wein as editor, I, I was able to focus on secondary characters like Red Tornado, did a whole series of stories, you know, around him and his, uh, Gene Loring and, and the Adam, you know, I did some stories around that. Uh, Zatanna, you know, I could do stories that, that where, where I could focus on those secondary characters, Firestorm when he came in. Uh, but then there was a pressure as Teen Titans took off and it became a, a phenomenal hit for for dc mm-hmm. there was a pressure for the other main group book which was of course justice league to match it in sales and we were not you know yeah it's a different audience it's a different structure but i didn't want to leave the book but there was like uh, you know it was, it was made fairly clear to me that that something had to be done you know, to, uh, to to make the book more successful. So uh, I suggested, why don't we do what uh, what uh, Stan did with the Avengers when he was faced with a similar uh, situation, you know, of not being able to develop character storylines um, because the main characters were all in their own books. Uh, he brought in, you know, Captain America, as you know, was the the one loose ca- loose character that he had, mm-hmm. and then he brought in three other uh, characters who had no books and no stories to, to worry about. Uh, and I said we could do something similar. We could you know keep a core group of of uh, traditional characters who are don't have their own books, and create some new younger characters. Uh, including, you know, Vixen and, uh, and a, a new version of Steel uh, for my own personal interests right. uh, and, and give them, you know, the focus of the, the ongoing stories. Uh, you know, I loved characters like uh, Martian Manhunter and uh, Elongated Man and uh, uh, Aquaman, all of whom didn't have any ongoing series at the time. So this would theoretically could, you know, uh, 
keep some of the main readers and, and you know, traditional readers and uh, maybe in, bring in some new readers. And, and in addition to that, let's make it more grounded, you know, put them into a, a real location, you know, so it, people know that this is a new era, you know. And I think it could have worked if I'd been better at dealing with uh, developing those characters. I, I, I think some of the stories were pretty good, but I, I never pushed it. I never got to the point where I, I, I felt like the new characters really meshed with the old characters. Um, and some of, the, some of the editorial supervision that I had uh, after Len led, left the book, you know, I had uh, Alan Gold uh, come in uh, as an editor, and he had no experience editing comics. He was a comic fan, but you know, his prior experience in editing textbooks for Macmillan, and, wow. and uh, he, he didn't. Yeah, he didn't have he didn't have a visual sense, uh, you know, to, to work with Chuck uh, Patton, uh, and didn't have a, a real good. Uh, marketing sense to come up with good covers, you know, that would somehow, you know, grab the reader. Um, and he and I didn't get along, you know, because I, I, I was in a, I was a real, in my real jerk phase at that point, you know, was, uh, I was feeling very frustrated. I was feeling defensive, you know, because I knew that, that uh, DC wanted me off the book. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was I was very much on my high horse. You know about the whole thing because I had written the book for years and it had been successful, and the, the sales weren't down that much. You know, they were just right. not as good as Teen Titans. You know, um, but they wanted somebody new, and they were making it clear, you know, that they wanted a new direction. So this is what we tried, and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, it, it's too bad because, I mean, I was reading your your Justice League before when it was kind of the classic characters, and it felt very classic, but it, it, was, it wasn't necessarily, you know, one of those must-reads for me that I really anticipated. It was just, mm-hmm. it, you know, as a huge DC fan yeah. and a comic fan, it felt like, oh, I got to read Justice League and find out what they're up to, you know, as the iconic DC team. But I just remember the soap, op- soap operatic feel once you brought in these other characters, the Detroit League, so much more interesting because I didn't know these characters and there was an interest in getting to know them. Right, and it, it, right. it, 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 it just right at the top of my pile. Um, and Luke, Mc, you know, oh. Chuck Patton, I loved, and, and I know Chuck and he's, he's awesome. And Luke, but Luke McDonald brought a different, he brought more oh, of a yeah. gritty, a gritty feel to it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and his, his version of Despero is still one of my favorite yeah. versions of that character ever. Uh, yeah, I mean, Luke, Chuck was great uh, in, in uh, working with him initially. Uh, but his storytelling, I think, was a, a little flat, you know, for, for, for that book. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's good. It would have been good on, on, on a number of other books. But on that particular book, you needed something that was going to lift it up. Well, um, with, with the old team. You know, with the classic yeah. superhero team, he Chuck would have been great. just perfectly yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. uh, he had that Dick Dillon quality of being able to exactly to, to do the characters right. You know, mm-hmm. um, as far as making the new characters special and different, you know, I think Luke really did some uh, some really good work with that. Uh, I think it might if there was a failure, it was my failure 
to get along with my editor and uh, to uh, really dig down enough into those characters so that uh, the, the story, that their stories moved along sufficiently to, to keep you, you know, really attached. Uh, but we were, we were pushing against uh, headwinds, you know, and, and uh, we lost, basically we lost the uh, mainstream readers that wanted to see Superman, Batman, and uh, mm-hmm. Wonder Woman in every issue. And we didn't gain the, the readers who were fascinated by uh, Teen Titans. So <laughs> it just sort of dropped off. I, I don't remember even how badly the sales dropped, but they did drop. Uh, and you know, I left, and they they fixed it. So yeah. not, <laughs> not enough vibe, not enough vibe in Gypsy fans at, at the time. Uh, but the other thing I, yeah. I also wonder, and I always, I've always wondered this. You know, obviously after um, after Christ on Infinite Earth, and and then the, the Legends series, that that's when the the uh, Giffen Demetrius uh, McGuire version of Justice League uh, came out. But you know, a few of your issues tied in with Crisis, and then tied in with Legends. Like, did you know that was coming? Did did that factor in at all with the series ending, or was it just the the drop in sales and and them just not happy with the direction of the book? I think it was. I think it was a general feeling. It was the it was the feeling that they wanted to go new. You know, that's that's really what, what that was. The this was the period when uh, Paul Levitz was saying things like, "People over the age of thirty can't write comics." Uh, you know. <laughs> Which is kind of funny now, since almost everybody writing comics is over fifty. Yeah, uh, it's like, but you know, he he felt that that uh, you know we new blood was necessary. You know that 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 everything had to be reinvented. You know, and and that was, I, I mean, there's a certain logic to that. You know, uh, but I was burning out. You know, and I think that was mostly what was going on for me personally on mm. on those titles. So. I, I can't say that, uh, you know, it was anything specific, you know, the, the, the failure was any, anything on, uh, on DC's part more than it was just, you know, me burning out. Yeah. Just I'd written the book for eight, eight, nine years at yeah. that point, you know? Yeah. Just time, time to do something different. Uh, yeah. which actually re- reminds me of something else I wanted to ask you in terms of, is there any obligation that a, that a writer has, you know, we, we've, uh, in terms of, you know, we've we've talked about Spider-Man as an archetype and and whatnot, and and wanting to keep it the same. Uh, certainly, as a creative, you want people to to bring their own experiences to it and and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Is there any obligation? I mean, obviously, you want to entertain. That's an obligation. But should you? I mean, I I don't think you would ever go so far as to say, "Hey, I'm going to tell somebody how to enjoy this." Like, where do you draw the line? What is the writer's obligation to to the reader? Is it just to entertain, and that's it? No, I think I think. <sighs> Your, the writer's obligation is to tell a story that they would like to read. Mm. That would be my, 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 and and then it's the editor's obligation to to decide whether that's a story that readers would want to read. Mm. <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, and the publisher's obligation to try to keep everybody you know on the same page. Um, you have to be passionate about your own work and tell the stories that you want to tell as a writer. Uh, you should hopefully be the kind of person that wants to read that book as well. You know, uh, you, writers who go on to books for, of characters that they don't respect or not interested in 
should not be writing those books. Mm. You know, uh, you should want, you should be a fan of those characters and uh, love the archetype. You know, that would be my, uh, my suggestion. If don't, if you, if you don't love the archetype, don't write that book. <laughs> no. And your obligation is to write stories that you want to read because you're the, you're the only person whose mind you actually know. Right. Um, if you're trying to, uh, to psych out a reader or, you know, or, or not psych out a reader, if you're trying to, to, reader, uh, to, to, to read into what a reader wants, you know, and deliver what they want, that's a mistake because uh, you don't know what the reader wants. You know what you want. Uh, and hopefully, you know, an editor will put the right team together to cre create stories that are appropriate for that character. Uh, the worst thing is, as I say, when, when a writer or a creative comes onto a book and doesn't like the, doesn't like the archetype and wants to change it, uh, don't do that. You know, go off and create your own character mm -hmm. or work on a book that you do, you know, want to want to want to tell those stories. I mean, when I took over Spider-Man, all I wanted to do was write 1964 Spider-Man stories. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously adapted and, and, and developed, you know, and hopefully and, uh, you know, more intelligently or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever my personal thing was. But my touchstone was. I wanted to recreate for me the enthusiasm that I felt when I read Master Planner, you know, the Master Planner sequence. Right. Uh, the, the, the feeling that I felt when Peter opened the door, Mary Jane was standing there and she said, face it, Tiger, you know, you hit the jackpot. Yeah. That's, that's was what I wanted. So every story I wrote was trying to recapture that feeling that I had that I wanted, uh, that I hoped the reader would share in, you know, as they were reading it. When I wrote Batman, uh, I wanted to write the Batman, the kind of Batman stories that I had loved, both uh, when Bill Finger and Dick Sprang were doing the book, and when uh, John Broom, Gardner Fox, and Carmen Infantino were doing the book. You know, I wanted to combine those 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 uh, stories, and you know, update them to today, you know, or the 1980s, uh, so that they felt fresh and new, but at the same time would give me that feeling that I had of, oh, that was clever, or, oh, that's, that's the Batman I, I, I love. You know, that's Bruce Wayne, tortured soul, you know, uh, dealing with his, his guilt, but still able to, you know, be, be uh, uh, a father figure to, to Dick Grayson. You know, that was my Batman. And I think if you're, if you're a creator, that's your obligation, you know, is to tell the story you want to read. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the, a good editor will put you together with uh, another creator who wants to do the same and you, you make a good thing together. Uh, but you can't anticipate what a reader wants. You should not anticipate yeah. what a reader wants. Yeah, it's good. No, it's good advice. And I think you know where we are now we've talked about comics being at the center of pop culture and and you know we're in this golden age of, of creator-owned stuff and uh you know really appreciate your time and we'll finish up with this this last question here you know the work for hire versus creator-owned and not that i begrudge uh anybody you know having the dream to go work for marvel or dc but if you can be more passionate about creating your own character um 
you know, maybe it's an easier way in. And and for you specifically, I mean, you, you just weren't in that era of work for hire. But I got to say, I think if you were, Cinder Nash would have been your, your creator-owned property. Yeah. And I would have loved to have had more uh, Cinder Nash from you. So Me too. let me just finish yeah. up and, and you know, any, any thoughts about the creator-owned <clears throat> space that we're in right now and, and Cinder Nash? Well, I think, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, Cinder Nash is, is very much part of an era. Of an era. Uh, and, you know, but a particular collaboration, you know, with, with Jose. Um, I would say that it's a wonderful opportunity right now for creators. I mean, they, they can have the best of both worlds, you know. Mm-hmm. They can go, they can develop their, their reputations by working for the majors for a couple, three, four years, you know, to develop a, uh, a fan following uh, and then use that to go off and create their own material that they own. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I wish we had had those options, you know, when I was younger. Um, but, you know, it's a terrific, and it can go the other way around too. You know, uh, you can start off in indie comics, uh, you know, with, with a self-published book, you know, or, you know, a web, a web uh, uh, cartoon. Um, and, uh, you know, introduce yourself that way and have a body of work that uh, you can present, you know, uh, a, a lot of the people who broke into comics, uh, you know, we're still in the process of learning, mm-hmm. you know, what we were doing. Uh, so there's a lot of rough edges to a lot of those early seventies books and late sixties books, uh, from the new generation, you know, especially mm-hmm. compared to the professionalism of the older generation. And, but these days, everybody who breaks into a mainstream comic is damn good, you know, mm-hmm. at, at, with, from their first uh, story on, you know. And that's because there's a lot of opportunity for them to develop uh, before they even hit that. So you like, you've, got, you've got the minor leagues now, uh, you've got the majors, and then you've got the independent uh, 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 players, you know, right. <laughs> the guys who can go off and write their own ticket, you know. Um, and I think that's a, that's a pretty comfortable place for, for creatives to be in at this, at this stage. Uh, I envy them, you know, I mean, when Roy Thomas and I came out to Hollywood in the late seventies as writing, writing team, uh, we almost had to hide the fact that we had prior, we had previously written for comics, uh, in some cases, you know, it, it, it didn't hurt, but it never helped us. Uh, <laughs> the idea now that you can come out and you can come out and, and uh, have simply written a comic book and then get a job writing screenplays or running shows is amazing to me. And I'm, I'm so happy for these people, but it is a different, different reality than what uh, uh, we worked through in the, in the silver age, in the bronze age. Yeah, well, and and as a freelancer, so many your your fingers in so many different pies. You come out and you're you're still writing a comic, you're running a show, and some other movie or TV studio has gone direct series on your other creator own. I mean, it's yeah, yeah exactly. It's, it's it's amazing. It's a great opportunity. Great opportunities for people. Yeah. Well, I know you're still a fan of of comics and a champion of them, Jerry, which I I appreciate after your decades in the industry. And we really appreciate the the conversation. It's been a joy uh, speaking to you. And we didn't even touch on any of that stuff that you were talking about with Father Dowling Mysteries and Terminator. We'll have to have you back on it at some point. 
uh, to talk about sure. uh, that whole thing. Maybe we'll get Roy on as well. So uh, anyway, yeah. I-, I reminded everybody uh, at the top of the show, but uh, Twitter is the best place to, to follow you online. Yeah, it's basically where I, uh, my social media is uh, at, at Jerry Conway uh, with a little blue check. Um, and uh, I, because I, I, I think uh, Facebook is the devil's work and I won't have anything to do with it. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. Just follow me on Twitter. Yeah. And it's I'll put a, a link in the show notes. Yeah. I'll put a link in the show notes, everybody for Jerry's Twitter. If you're having trouble following, you can just go click there and give a follow. So uh, again, Jerry, Fantastic speaking to you. Thanks so much for for years of joy uh, in uh, reading reading your comics and uh, keep doing what you're doing on Twitter, man. Uh, I love I love your Discord. You give so many great links to to articles that are very uh, informative uh, and and keep me up to date on on the politics. We're of such a similar mind, so I really appreciate it. <laughs> I appreciate it too. Thank you. And I'll talk to you uh, later. Yep. And to all you listeners, we uh, appreciate the support and for you listening as always. And we'll talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes, as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.